Police Department. I would like to report a crime. The comedian Lauren Lodudice hacked into my brain and wrote a book called Inside Melania, what I know about Melania Trump by impersonating her. What does she know about me besides for stepping into my skin for the last three years and her impersonation? You can find the book that me and Donald do not want you to read at www.insidemelania.com. The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. This is episode 125 of Reconcile the Isle. What on earth is going on? Rocket Man. Puerto Rico. Russia, 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 Russia. Eight accusers. Several allegations. Thousands of cases. Charlottesville. Horrific shooting. Deadly school shooting. The third deadly mass shooting in a week. Category four. California wildfires. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Government shutdown. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. Reconcile the Isle. Welcome to Reconcile the Isle on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. On the show, my characters and I are figuring out how we can have meaningful dialogue about difficult topics. My name is Lauren Lojudice. Today, we're speaking with special guest Timothy J. Schaefer. But first, let's go to our Stupid, Stupid People, People segment. segment. For those of you who are new here, it's the part of the podcast where we salute stupidity because what unites us across all boundaries, what unites the world is that we hate stupid people. My dad rants about the stupidest person he's seen that week, and we rate their assholeness in rectums. So here's our segment, Stupid People, with my dad, Charles LeJudice Jr. Okay, I understand we have this pandemic, which is whatever. I'm not going to get into the politics of it, but you got all of these stores now. People are working. People in hospitals were deemed essential workers. They went to work every day, okay? People working in the grocery store, the stock boy that stocks the shelves, the cashier and everything, they're wearing masks and gloves. The cashier just has a, a, a sheet of plexiglass in front of her. There's nothing to the ceiling. Everything's floating around in the air and everything. Yet, a lot of the banks, which are already glassed to the top, bulletproof, they're living in those, they're like in biospheres. They can live inside on the other side. These fucking bank people, some of them like Citibank and Chase, you could go in, you could got the tellers, you could use the, they, you know, other banks, they only got the lobby open for limited hours to, for an ATM machine or something. And you can't use a teller unless it's a drive-thru and not every bank has drive-thru capability. So, I mean, like this is the biggest fucking joke in the world. You could fucking live behind that glass. If they had that glass, Dorm prohibition, like when Al Capone and all the gangsters were fucking going into the bars and they were, you know, slapping the guys around, telling them, oh, you're going to buy my beer. And then, so they had to buy his beer. And then the next day, the other gangster came in and he said, you got to buy my beer. They're so safe behind that glass. I mean, that if Al Capone walked in, they could say, hey, listen, I'll, I'll put a fucking scarf on the other side of your face. I'm not buying your beer. And Al Capone couldn't get to them. They could fucking order out Chinese food, have it delivered. They got the box on the side, like the post office. If you got a big package to put the fucking thing in. So you're never going to get to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's another thing. These fucking banks are ridiculous. And then how many rectums do we give them? 
uh, you know, they're making zillions of dollars. They charge you a fee for every fucking thing. You know what I mean? And they got the credit cards, you know, that they're charging you 19 to 20 something percent. They're real fucking rat bastards. I give them a five. Wow. People are so stupid. Let's get to our interview with special guest Timothy J. Schaefer. Timothy is an associate professor of the Department of Communication Studies and director of the Institute for Civic Discourse and Democracy at Kansas State University. He is also principal research specialist with the National Institute for Civil Discourse at the University of Arizona. Connected to these efforts, Schaefer also serves as the associate editor of the Journal of Deliberate Democracy as a country expert on deliberative democracy with the Varieties of Democracy VDEM Institute Research Project, and as co-director guiding the work of the Deliberate Pedagogy Lab, an international project focused on applied scholarship about the ways that deliberation can transform higher education, educational approaches, and environments. As an interdisciplinary scholar and practitioner of deliberate democracy, civic education, and small group communication, Schaefer focuses on the role of civic professionals in institutional settings, such as local government, higher education, and non-governmental organizations in relationship with diverse communities. Through his scholarship, he contributes to discussions within fields such as communication studies, higher education, and civic studies where themes of citizenship, professionalism, community, and civic life are explored. Folks, we've been trying to figure out how to have meaningful dialogue about difficult topics. This is what he does. So, Listen, if you're wondering how exactly we can learn to talk to each other again, you're going to want to hear this episode. And you can always sign up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get reminders when I publish this every other week. My co-host, Melania Trump, we're discussing how to have democracy. I find that offensive. Uh, okay. Fascism, oh, so much better. No talking. Uh, we're not referencing what's good for you, Melania. Of course we are. What else is there to say? Oh boy. All right. Let's go to the interview with Timothy J. Schaefer. Welcome, Tim Schaefer, to Reconcile the Isle. Yeah, great. It's good to be here. Tell us about, you do, you do a few different things. You're mm-hmm. working with the National Institute for Civil Discourse and you're a professor at Kansas State University. So let's talk a little bit about this really interesting course that you started and created and ran about deliberate democracy. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, I think the course in question is something that I started actually when I was a doctoral student still. I went to Cornell University and was really very interested in the role of higher education and how it played a role in, uh, especially for younger people to think about themselves as being citizens and, and what that looked like. And so I happened to be in uh, Dayton, Ohio at the Kettering Foundation, uh, which is a research foundation really interested in kind of democratic practices from all sorts of kind of sectors. But fundamentally, they're really interested in the the theme of making democracy kind of work as it should and through this language and this lens of citizen kind of centered politics. And so while I was there, I had a chance to teach a course at a local university, the University of Dayton. And they had been uh, connected somewhat with some of this deliberative democracy work in the past. And so they had some real interest in trying to develop this. And so I I had a chance to kind of develop a course that was really rooted in the idea of dialogue and deliberation. And then this question about what does it mean for higher education, for colleges and universities, for faculty, but also for students to see uh, themselves as citizens in this kind of big sense. So not just narrowly defined as 
kind of a legalistic term. But yeah, so I had a chance to develop a course there and have written about it, published about it. But I've continued to teach kind of iterations of, of that course at different levels. And so in my current work now, I teach graduate seminars on deliberation and dialogue theory, also some of the kind of practical matters. Um, I'm frankly at Kansas State University. Now I have the opportunity to expand that into other um, kind of realms and courses. And so I teach a number of classes that all kind of intersect and resonate with these, I think, the themes that showed up early on in that initial course. But really, how do we think about ourselves as citizens? How do we think about deliberation being something that we can both understand and practice and, and wrestle with, right, with all of its kind of issues and challenges that come into play, especially when we think about engaging people kind of across those lines of difference, right? So the, mm-hmm. uh, the categories that we might see ourselves as being part of and seeing others and something else, how do we actually do that? And, and so, yeah, so I teach undergraduate and graduate students uh, and, and on occasion professionals who are really interested in this kind of work. Uh, in a number of classes, but at the heart of it really is this kind of common theme of what role does communication play in helping to foster kind of a more robust democracy. I love this. Uh, One of the student responses you had, um, the student says, I think that only when every individual tries to be the best versions of themselves that America or any democratic state can be the best version of itself. Yeah, I mean, it was I will say it was a wonderful, that particular course um, that was written about um, a few years ago is for me, one of those wonderful kind of moments in your life as I was finishing a doctoral program and really thinking a lot about these questions of of how do we actually put some of this to practice, had a a great small group of students who were, were in here in this course and from different backgrounds, different disciplines. Um, it was an honors course, so they were really, I think, uh, taking the content and making it apply to the worlds that they were in. But it was, you know, it was one of those powerful reminders that we all have the opportunity and maybe the benefit of of learning, figuring out how to do that, right? So sometimes it's going to be in formal classes, and sometimes it's going to be actually in some of these kinds of conversations. And so, you know, they had the opportunity, as I continue to do uh, just about every course, have students learn how to facilitate um, actually uh, convene conversations around topical issues of, of the day of where they are. Um, so we've continued to have discussions uh, here in Kansas, in Manhattan, Kansas, where Kansas State University is around really pertinent issues of, uh, kind of on campus life. We had a concealed handgun law a few years ago being implemented. And so we had a lot of conversations about that. We've had uh, discussions about immigration and, you know, the kind of us and them and, and all of these kinds of dynamics, um, all the way to kind of really hyper-localized to a neighborhood school of how do we think about kids getting to and from school safely. And so talking about bikes and bike paths and safe walkways and things of that, that at all different levels, we can think about these kinds of themes. And so one of the really important things for me is that democracy often gets, especially right now in an election cycle, right? We think about it happening someplace else in Washington, D.C. or in state capitals. And so much of how I think about it and how I really encourage students to think about it is that it's it's there. Yes, uh, it's in your capital. It's in your city council, but it's also in in you, right? It's also in your in your kind of immediate re- close relationships and, and also those your neighbors that you may not know very well, and also those that you don't, right? We have to think about it all the way down to that kind of almost granular level for this to be something that's embodied and lived. 
Yeah. And what I loved is that you actually designed the course. It wasn't just like you were talking about these things and you did facilitation. You actually designed the way that like knowledge was both acquired and evaluated mm. was based on your ideas and like the ideas about civil discourse and democratic processes. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So a big piece of this is really rooted in the um, last semester. In fact, I was teaching a doctoral seminar and we were talking about a slightly fancy word of epistemology, uh, which just means like, how do we know things and how do we come to know them? And it's one of these really significant, I think, questions we have to ask ourselves at multiple points in time is how do we um, how do we come to know the world around us, right? So part of it's through kind of lived experiences and, and reading books, right? And all this kind of stuff. But for us to also acknowledge that that varies and is really uh, so much grounded and rooted in a variety of, of kind of dynamics of, of an individual's life. And for us to be able to step into, I think, interaction and, and conversation with one another, and then maybe even more than just conversation informally, but more kind of structured things, allows us to have this kind of uh, acknowledgement and also wrestling with the kind of ideas and convictions people have, but also uh, in really kind of factual ways. So, right, dialogue is a more kind of open process. Deliberation is fundamentally uh, something a little bit distinct that we're really weighing tensions and trade-offs. We're really trying to consider like, is this the best path or what else might we consider or look at here as it relates to Mm -hmm. this topic or issue? And that's, you know, so much of it, it really is. And this is why I love to teach it um, and really think about it a lot is it's really rooted in our idea of kind of knowledge and learning. And how do we think about that? And a lot of that happens in institutions like colleges and universities or in schools. Right. But a lot of it also happens in other spaces. We one term uh, kind of refer to these as like third spaces. Right. So the, the, the coffee shops and the basements of churches and other locations where people might kind of convene where they have a chance to interact or intersect, um, sometimes a little bit more informally, but what are those third spaces in life? And for right now, most of us are not in those third spaces, right? Everything is is either um, limited by our immediate kind of family or proximity, or it's very scheduled, right? So everybody's got an upcoming call at the top of an hour or things like that, whereas we don't have the same kind of fluidity of life that has existed in the fairly recent past, right? But we're I think going to be really challenged, uh, but importantly, uh, we need to kind of reclaim some of that when we're able to do it more, yeah. um, more safely and uh, and appropriately. But it's a it's a critical piece that if we lose, right? This is, um, you know, I've heard some colleagues kind of use this phrase of uh, civic muscle, right? We need to kind of continue to exercise our civic practices. Yes, and this is what this like podcast is really about because I feel like we've lost the ability to actually have civil discussion with each other. And so then we're actually just more and more in our bubbles and we don't talk about anything with anyone important. We just avoid all the difficult topics and then just go into our bubble and rant about them. So I was wondering about the students would do a lot of reflection and they would read other people's reflections as well. So I was wondering how their reflection pieces were different than a Facebook post of a reflection, you know, when people are like, I just want to say, and then they go on for five paragraphs. How are those different? Yeah. So one of the practices uh, from that particular course that I've continued, and I actually learned this, I should note as a practice from one of my own teachers and my advisor, actually my doctoral advisor, Scott Peters, who's on faculty at Cornell, he would have students write these 
reflections. And so they were, it was a weekly course. So it was once a week, it was a couple, two and a half hours long, right? So there was a, a little bit more time, but what we would, we would do and what I've adopted and I continue to do in a lot of classes is when people write these reflections, they're grounded in kind of their wrestling um, questions about the topic as it intersects with the things that they've done maybe in the past or are thinking about now. But the important piece is we read it together. So at the beginning of a class, and um, I don't do it right now, especially now that we're all distance and things like that, but I would literally, I used a lot of paper doing this, but I would take everybody's reflections uh, prior to class. I'd copy them all and make these big stacks and everybody would get them. And so we take the first 15 minutes to kind of read uh, one another's reflections and uh, then we would kind of get into it. So it gave people kind of a sense of starting uh, starting point. But what's important here is that what really, to your question, really makes something like that radically different than, say, just kind of like the Facebook post or the rant that just kind of goes off into an ether and maybe it gets picked up by somebody, right? And you have a little back and forth and maybe you're, you know, the person who aligns with you also chimes in and there's always a few hyperlinks and, you know, and then it peters out or, or whatever happens is that when you do this actually in kind of relationship with one another, that you're in a context where it's not somehow radically disconnected. And so it's possible to do it even from a distance, right? But if I have a sense of kind of who you are and we have some kind of purpose for this interaction, it's really different than just saying like, here's my commentary, right? Here it is, yeah. whether it's on social media or it's in a response to a news article, or, you know, the comment section, which is usually typically awful because those are not designed those are not designed to actually be interactions with people. Those are usually just kind of a platform for a statement and you may applaud it, you may hate it, vilify it, whatever, but it's not really seen as being kind of a constructive interaction. And so being able to build, I think some of those practices become really important because we're also complex, right? We don't, you know, some people will have kind of fairly straightforward kind of arguments, you know, for or against, or maybe not very nuanced, but for most of us, we really do have variations in our views we have some complexity that we need to tease that out, right? So if we always flatten things, either those which we support or those that we're kind of opposed to, that really kind of glosses over or, or unfortunately simplifies, I think, these kind of wrinkles that are, are really critical for us to think about. Yeah, and things you might not even think about if you actually take the time to listen. Like I was in um in this forum where people were actually talking civilly to each other and someone mentioned, you know, I don't support a lot of climate change legislation and and restrictions on carbon and vehicles because I'm in a rural area and we have old cars mm. and we can't get them fixed or whatever it was like now that the more technology is more expensive to fix the cars and we can't afford it. I was like, I wish I would have known that sooner. Now I like understand. Now the problem becomes that's a problem. Okay, we got to work on that. But when we don't even get that far, it's hard to know like how to move forward. You're just like, you either support me or don't. And I do wonder too, because like I've had people I know be jerks on social media. So I oh yeah, of course. We all have, right? We probably also do jerks. I wonder if it's that like the students can't just say fuck off because they have a grade. They need you. Yeah. Well, and this is where, I mean, um, it's funny you mentioned this because it's something I always talk about a lot at the beginning of the semester is that I, I try to kind of democratize classrooms, right? So I... I try to flatten it the way that we do kind of assessments and things that it's not really quizzes and tests. It's all sorts of other kind of writing and actions like, you know, kind of experiential and things of that sort. But, but I always come back to it, right? Importantly, that 
for all those kind of attempts, there's still kind of a hierarchy, right? I still have a certain authority and yeah. power. I always use the example of like, uh, when we're still meeting in person, right? I'm walking around. I'm like, I'm the one who gets to wander around this room very comfortably and casually because I use our seminars or, or or the like, you know, up to maybe about 25, about 30 at, at most. And they're not doing that, right? They're still sitting in their their chairs or at their desks. And, and so there's all these kind of normative practices that we just assume in certain settings. And so you have to kind of navigate that. But with all that said, I always advocate for and kind of push people to have more, I don't want to just say candid, but really, I mean, it's in my my syllabi all the time, right? The kind of free expression and kind of community kind of tensions, right? Being able to have sometimes uncomfortable or challenging discussions, right? So not shying away from that. And also not necessarily trying to just operate from a, you know, what does my professor want me to say? Well, what does he really want yeah. me to say, right? Rather than like, I actually think this. And that's, you know, and that's tough, right? I mean, because we're always kind of assessing and evaluating those around us, whether it's our, our neighbors, whether it's a teacher, if you're going to have interactions beyond this one moment, right? If it's just, you know, a flash in the pan on a, on a thread on social media, that's one thing, right? Maybe I never know this person or where they're from, or even if they're real, right? They might be a bot. But if I'm going to show up every Tuesday and Thursday with you in a class, or if you literally live, live next door to me, or you're going to be in uh, you're in my congregation, or we're in the, the corner shop, the coffee shop that um, I routinely go, right? I might have different levels of kind of orientation to how I want to actually address some difference. And, you know, I, I experienced that personally, right? I, I can uh, think very honestly about a neighbor who I know we have radically different views uh, on on politics, on things like religion, all, all sorts of stuff. And we we find not necessarily that we 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 engage the the really kind of contentious things in this kind of confrontational way, but I guess I, I think about this a lot, like the importance of entering into those interactions with some degree of intellectual humility. And if I have, I mean, I know things, right? Um, whether it's credentials or through academic work or kind of lived experience, kind of this um, localized knowledge, this kind of wisdom, if you want to think about some of those things. But like, it's not exhaustive, right? It's not everything. We have, you know, uh, importantly, levels of expertise and depending on how we want to think about that in various places. Uh, but for me, this kind of humility of stepping into those interactions is that my orientation should be to understand what somebody's talking about, right? Do I actually get it? Or am I making a set of assumptions or is what they're saying not quite right? All those kinds of things. So that's, that's one element. But then the other one is, is like, if you understand it, um, whether you agree with it or want to push back or raise questions, or you just fundamentally want to disagree, like, how do you actually do that? And that's where I think this kind of constructive piece becomes really helpful. That for me, as someone who's, you know, I direct an institute for civic discourse and democracy at Kansas State. I'm also a faculty of communication studies, and I'm at the National Institute for uh, Civil Discourse doing uh, a lot of research work, but also a fair amount of, amount of it's kind of applied. And last year, colleagues and I, we published a book called A Crisis of Civility, and there's a contribution in there by a philosopher, Anthony Layden, and he kind of lays out these two different ways of thinking about something like civility, right? Because civility gets a lot of knocks uh, appropriately, right? Because it can kind of police conversation. It can shut certain people out, entire groups, in fact. Um, 
And at the same time, right, we do need to figure out some way to be with each other, right? We have to figure this out. And so Leyden's argument is that we can talk about civility as kind of like the politeness, right? It's the following the rules. Are you doing kind of the etiquette type of things, whether it's drinking your tea with your pinky up mm-hmm. or if you're following Robert's rules in, in yeah. you know, a legislature? And the another way to think about civility is as kind of responsiveness to others, right? So how do we hold, and this is coming from like kind of a philosophical tradition uh, from John Rawls and others that says, we need to find ways to have interactions. And even if, especially, um, but even if we have these disagreements, how do we still maintain something and kind of find some place through that? And it's not exhaustive. It can't always happen. And we're seeing it right now. There are certain boundaries that we want to say, like, that's out of, that's out of line, like literally, right? If I'm going to dehumanize you as an individual or as a group, then maybe that's beyond those parameters that we put around a conversation. But, you know, I, I lean a little bit more towards how do we have a bigger kind of space for interaction rather than less? Um, so not overly kind of policing it, but acknowledging like that comes into tension with the sense of, of people's worth and value as individuals, as, as people, depending on, on a whole lot of layers. And so, yeah, so that's, you know, a big piece that I think about as it re- relates specifically to language around civility, because for a lot of people that can be just viewed as this, like, you know, immediate kind of writing it off because it's excluding or marginalizing or just expecting certain people to speak in certain ways. And maybe that is impossible or it's not desired, right? That if, if you are in danger or wrestling with serious issues as a community, right? So maybe there's going to be another response. And we live, you know, in a democratic society where like, I always want protests to be possible. I want this kind of sense of speech and assembly to be uh, not just kind of accepted in a basic way, but kind of really embraced. And that, that's hard sometimes. And that really does run counter to this idea of the interaction and conversation that we might aspire to, but it's not always possible in that moment. I think it was, I think I have two solutions here. I think we should give everyone a grade. They get every year a report card of their social media um, civility. <laughs> and it affects a lot of things. It, maybe it affects their, it goes into their job portfolio it goes into their resume. It's like, it's like almost like a social security card. Cause I feel like people got to like understand the words they use are really important. And you want to go mouth off and be an asshole all over social media. You feel like you have no consequences. And that's, and that's the thing. People feel like they can say whatever they want and they're never going to see you. And they're in their basement typing away. Also, I think next family dinner, cause uh, this might come around when the holidays are starting to pick up. If you have a family gathering, Maybe everyone should write a reflection and they get a stack at the, the start appetizer and they have to spend 10 minutes reading everyone's ideas of, of what's going on. And maybe that can help us understand each other. Okay. Also I had a question though for you about how, like you say about, you know, you, when your classroom, you were challenging the readings. It wasn't just like the kids would come in and take the notes and those were the facts. You were saying more like you can come in and challenge the facts and, and talk about them. And what about like people, like I've read that people say like kids come in now and they're not even like, they don't even want to, maybe this is an exaggeration. I don't know if this is a thing, but this is, I hear, I hear in the mm-hmm. street. The kids are coming in today and they're like, what's going on? Like kids are coming in not thinking that there's any facts. If this makes sense. Like just not like taking anything as truth, maybe going. A oh, okay. Yeah. I, I see what you mean. So kind of like the, the, the postmodern approach of like, we don't, 
like the, the kind of big T truth, small T truth stuff. Yeah. But, yeah. Just not established that accepting there's any truth anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> that goes back to my point about epistemology earlier, right? How do we know yeah. things, um, which is an important one to kind of raise. And, you know, I think it's an important issue, especially like in formal settings, but generally speaking, right. Where do we, where do we trust uh, sources of information and where is there levels of reliability, things of that sort. Um, we're actually, one of my courses, I'm teaching a senior capstone. Uh, so these are graduating seniors, either this semester or in the spring and thereabouts. And uh, it's both an opportunity to look back on what they've done previously, but also to face forward a little bit. And the way that I've structured this whole course, this is a slightly different way or maybe a longer way to respond to your question, but I hope it answers it, is that it's a course that I'm kind of referring to as communication for the public good, right? And so they have to fundamentally at the end of the course, design some process or some writing or things that would say, here's a way that we could respond to some, some issue. And they get to have a lot of latitude about choosing topic, all these sorts of things. But in, in part of the reading for that class is two books that come to mind, well, actually a few books that come to mind. One is called The Misinformation Age. So it just came out and it's all about scientists and how the science community has wrestled with challenges in the past where there's been kind of disagreement about things. And so there's there's a chapter on there about Lyme's disease. There are a, a number of chapters about kind of uh, clinical practices and, and even uh, centuries ago of where there were these amazing differences of deaths in a, an award where there were midwives and another where there were where there were doctors, right? And so they found out that basically the gentleman doctors were not washing their hands because they were coming straight from working on cadavers um, and then going in to deliver babies, and it was causing all sorts of problems because they didn't understand germs and the like. But there was this whole tension between um, what our what our expectations of like, you know, how how could these gentlemen's hands be dirty, right? Because they couldn't see anything. It seemed like they were they were fine, but these others, these midwives, primary these women, right, were, had a considerably better success. And so, one of the things I love about that book is it uses all these science examples of how we've kind of wrestled with information or misinformation and and challenged are challenged by that for all sorts of reasons. Um, and another another text uh, I'm using in there is called uh, the death of expertise. And so I'm I'm having these students read these books that are frankly not really communication texts. Uh, and I don't really use textbooks. I, I use all sorts of other things. But for me, it's setting up this real question of like, how do we step into a world where there's a whole lot of disagreement? It's so much kind of wrapped up in kind of psychology, the, the, the desire for kind of confirmation bias, right? And so staying on kind of on your in crowd and to your point of kind of the echo chambers and things like that, uh, various other terms that would describe it. Like these are some of the real issues that we face. And so being able to understand it and acknowledge that and then find some way through it, because it's not so much of just like, here are the facts, right? There are certain things that we can trust more if they go through certain processes, but it doesn't mean they're devoid of concern or question or that they are exempt from maybe being wrong, right? This is, we're experiencing it right now, right? We, we like to think about science as just this like really settled thing and it's clear of like A then B. Well, we're seeing it right now that it's a messy kind of learning process uh, of inquiry and kind of changing positions that as more, uh, as more and more is understood about something like mask wearing, for example, we say, oh my gosh, maybe this is something we should do. Oh, well, you, those guidelines that we had at a certain point are now insufficient because we, we understand it better. And, and so being, for me, being open to that possibility, this is back to that humility piece, right? Being open to that, you know what? It doesn't matter if they said, 
you know, two months ago or however many months ago that you don't really need to wear masks, right? It's minimal impact. And now we're like, you know what, if we really do this, it can cut by certain percentages. I'm someone who values, I think, that acknowledgement that we didn't necessarily know everything at this point. We know more now. And through these kind of informed judgments and through kind of verifiable sources and things that I'm going to trust that more, right? So you know, I'm fairly more modernist in that sense rather than postmodernist where we just like, we don't know anything. I think there's a lot of complexity and we need to kind of get out of just the kind of clinical exclusive way of like only certain people know some things. Yes. But that doesn't mean we dismiss it, right? And so that's why I think it's really important, especially in kind of these deliberative processes that we have those sources of information, right? We have the capacity to either lean on it in that moment or say, you know what? We don't actually know all of this about this topic. Let's, you know, if we have a series of conversations, that gives you a real opportunity to say, you know what, when we come back next time, and there are some really great models that use something like this, that would say, we're having this conversation now, what are the things that we have lingering questions about, and how do we offer some of that going forward? And a big part of that is, like, to come back the next time, whether it's in a few weeks or next month, with more data, if you want to think about it that way, or more resources, or interviews from people who are living in a community who are dealing with whatever the issue is, whether it's about healthcare or education, all of these things are wrapped up in this sense of, of who knows and what do we know? And I think we need to, I think, broaden and embrace some of that. And at the same time, acknowledge that a downside to that is because for other motives or reasons, whether it's for entertainment value or just a desire or a pursuit of power that, right, we throw certain things into question or kind of muddy it to an extent that kind of uh, smoking, for example, through a lot of the 20th century, for example, very intentionally actions were taken by interested parties to say, you know what, and climate science is another one of these things too, right? We, we want to have space for these interactions but, and conversation and diversity of voices, but there are certain points when we need to acknowledge that sometimes those voices are being used in a detrimental way and are not being kind of honest. Absolutely. But do you see that? Like, do you, or do you see, because I see another thing I see too, is like people like not actually learning to question. um, And they actually, I see that more. So do you think that's an overreaction of people being like, Oh, the kids are questioning everything. I, so I study a lot of the early to mid 20th century of models of dialogue and deliberation, say like the 1930s and forties specifically. So I, I feel like I know that fairly well, and even before then. And what's striking is the similarities of all these generations are always like, you know what, we knew better, and the older generations had a better take on this, and these new kids these days, and the kind of newfangled technologies. And so there's, um, I'm going to blank on it right now, but there's a fascinating book about kind of the rise of the telephone, right, in the early 20th century, and the detrimental effects it was going to have. And you could basically take telephone and put in like smartphone TikTok. and it would be the same thing. Right. And so that's one thing, right. Take it for what that is. The other is, and I think this is a real challenge that another text of that book that, uh, that senior capstone I'm, I'm teaching another book is called amusing ourselves to death came out in the mid eighties by Neil Postman. Oh yes. I love that book. Yes. And so it's, um, love that book. it's a, it's a great little text. And one of the important things, it's, and, and right, it was from 1985, so it's all about kind of the television and how we've lost yes. his argument of like kind of text, ba- the, the written word, and now it's kind of more this 
this entertainment value that we strive for and its implications in lots of other spaces. Uh, but I also include that. They have, have a lot of books in this class. Uh, but it, there's something about that that for us, and I'm very mindful of this now, especially as things, as I hear from students who, you know, Facebook is for, for their parents or for their grandparents. Mm -hmm. It's not for them, right? It's Instagram and some other things uh, that are very, I mean, exclusively almost visual. It's about mm -hmm. kind of the entertainment. It's this kind of aesthetic. Yeah. But part of what's wrapped up in that is this kind of immediate kind of move and kind of the, I don't know, sensational is one of the words, but like the, you know, Postman laments the idea of like, we can't focus anymore because all we're doing now is watching a 30 minute show or even like a 60 minute show. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, right. If you were around now and realizing like six seconds is maybe about the window in which you got to do the thing. And like the impact and the loss of some of it, um, which is significant. And for us in education, uh, this is where some of what I do and how I do it, the way that I teach, causes, I think, for some a little bit of discomfort because they're accustomed to, here's a textbook, we're going to read it, or at least we're going to look at the highlighted words, and we're going to take some, some tests on it, and, you know, there it is. And that's not my model, right? Mine is much more here are some themes and questions we're going to be exploring. And we're going to look at a variety of things that back to your comment earlier, I want you to push back and challenge and ask like, you know, I don't know if I agree with this kind of postman argument, why we've really lost something when we've gone away from kind of the written word, or at least thinking that way to more of kind of the, the, the visual or uh, kind of the audible piece uh, that we, we don't often think about as being a real significant shift away from maybe where we have been. And like, I, I, I appreciate and always welcome, not just pushback and being like, I'm not interested. I mean, I do somewhat care I, to students when they're like, you know, I, I didn't like this or I liked it. That to me is, I don't want to say irrelevant, but like, that's so superficial, right? I really want to know like, okay, what are your disagreements? What are the challenges or the questions that you have about this? What else might you bring into this that could be potentially helpful to say like, you know what? I don't think Postman's right. And for these reasons, or I've taken another course, or I've thought about it from this perspective, like that for me is what education is um, really rooted yes. in this ex exploration, this consideration, yeah. this, and even reconsideration, right? So for them, as well as for me, right, to have this sense of, I know some, I don't know it all. Um, and that's, and that's a hard thing, especially I can remember as an undergraduate student, right, of like, oh, I took a class on this. I totally know this stuff. And now I realize like, Every book behind me has some word about democracy or citizens or, or politics or education in it. And I know so little about it, right? And I've literally spent my adult life thinking about these themes. And so acknowledging some of that, I think, is a really important thing to do. Um, but that's also really hard, right? Because we exist in a world that, gosh, poor John Kerry. I always think about him of like when he got knocked for being a flip-flopper, of changing his mind yes. on something. And I think like... We should be more flip floppers, um, not so much of like like being just like, yeah, I'm over here, I'm over here. But if there's more information that comes to bear, if there are other considerations that we hadn't even known about. Right. There's all yeah. sorts of factors that, you know, we did. We didn't know this 10 years ago, but now we do. And or even as your comment about the rural people, like you might have a really strong position on why we need to just radically change, you know, vehicles and technologies but gosh, right? There are all sorts of implications that if you ask, you know, we're gonna we're gonna totally phase out the internal combustion engine and we're gonna go to electric cars. Well, who who gets left out of that? Or, or how do we ensure that there are points of access that 
remediates, um, I think, some of these uh, yeah. challenges. And, and that's what we need to raise. And you also talked about, too, just about, and this kind of, I thought, interesting, I thought a lot about Danigal, um, Danigal Young's work yep. Um, yep. of irony and outrage. She was a guest here. We've all talked about yep. it. You should go back and listen to that episode. And she talked about how, like, you know, there's different, different ways that people think. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're more conservative people versus more more liberal people. Conservatives a lot more like down the lines. These are the rules. These are the facts. Where liberals more like let's open up the question. And I thought about that when you had said the thing, the difference in the academy, the way that like more strict science based versus more of the um, the other types of social sciences are are handled and valued. And I thought about that too, because like, and I, and how much everything is being pushed towards doing the more, the hard, I guess hard, is that mean to say hard science? Well, it's, it's, it's language. Uh, there are a lot of people who, who push back on that. I, I actually use that language as kind of categories. I think it's helpful sometimes, like the hard sciences versus the soft sciences or the social sciences somewhere in the middle. And depending on who you are, some will really take that as a, a bit of a, a, an attack. But yes, the categories of some things that we would say are, you know, very clearly, if you follow these processes, like, here's your result, right? That, you know, this is why you don't blow yourself up with, like, you know, nitrogen oxide or whatever else. Like, yeah. But, yeah. But, and then, but see, like, I feel like they miss so much. For instance, like, my partner is, is an engineer. And I was mentioning something, like, we watch a movie. And I'm like, did you see all of these things that have happened? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. They didn't say that. And I'm like, but it was implied. Or even an article, like, just, yeah. This is the argument. This is their tenor. This is where they're coming from. And um, I went to Westland. So I'm very well versed in like breaking down yep. text and questioning and all of those things. And I feel like they don't know how to become citizens. I guess that's. Well, yeah. And I mean, and this is where, I mean, back to Young's work of and others who really look at like political psychology and the like that um, it's a really helpful thing. Um, so part of my background, my own background, is actually in studying religion. So I have a bachelor's and a master's in religious studies. And the ways that we see the world can be so, I don't want to say inclusive is one word that comes to mind, but just like almost exhaustive in a way that we don't even realize. It's like the fish in water who's like, what's water, right? The ability to acknowledge that if my brain literally is kind of more hardwired uh, from a slightly more conservative standpoint, like I want to know that I can hang on to this table, that this is real, right? The ability to know there are certain things that are true. I value it, you know, this kind of stuff. Whereas for those who are a little bit more, and we think about it on the spectrum of, let's say, politics, for example, those who are more uh, liberal um, are inherently kind of more open-minded if you want to use these categories, right? So the, the level of uncertainty, yeah. Yeah, like, so the uncertainty and the ambiguity are not to be seen as like, this is an attack on me and the values that I have about something, but they're just more of a a statement of reality, right? That we don't know this and that's okay, right? Maybe in fact, that's beautiful. Whereas somebody who has a different worldview is just like so unfortunately uncomfortable by that. And so it's not necessarily that one is, you know, everybody should be here instead of there, but it's acknowledging that we have some of these differences, real significant differences that have these implications, right? And so if I'm stepping into a conversation, you know, the two of us, and I know that you're, you're more of a kind of an open-minded person and I'm more kind of, um, you know, the conservative want to want to feel like I, you know, I have kind of a grounding in that, you know, more of a big T truth sort of thing instead of the small T truths. That's a really helpful piece uh, that can inform it, but that doesn't mean it, it goes away or becomes necessarily less challenging. It just highlights, depending on what you're trying to do, the importance of the awareness of some of that. 
Do you feel like this, like, focus on on tech, is this on those kinds of sciences, is that related and all with a rise of authoritarianism? And I'd love you to to also define that as well, because not everyone has come across that term and knows what it means. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, kind of the rise of authoritarianism is something that's happening globally. I'm part of an, a research project called the Varieties of Democracy, based out of the University of Gothenburg. And so it's a great data set, right? So this is, this is a, like hard numbers through the social sciences lenses. But it's a data set of every country in the world for the last just about 120 years, right? So um, a few go before 1900, but most of them are 1900 to present day, right? To, or to the, the most recent years. So I think about 2019. And on all of these kind of metrics that we look at of these kind of different pillars of democratic society and these norms, there has been kind of this backsliding, right? So just a few years ago, for the first time, there had been this kind of equal number of countries that were becoming uh, less democratic as they were becoming more democratic. It was, I think it was 24, and which is a significant thing, right? Because when we think about a lot of history, especially through the 19th and 20th century into the 21st, right? It's this kind of march towards progress. Things are getting better, generally speaking, uh, but it's this kind of move. And some of this runs counter to that. And so this kind of rise of authoritarianism is, is real and significant and, and in fact measurable. And we see it in a number of countries. And some of these uh, factors are also in the United States, right? So some of these categories, and this is where I think you always have to be really careful about what you're talking about and what some of the terminology is, because then it's really easy to get it just kind of picked up and especially in a more superficial way less nuanced that they're calling these people Mm -hmm. this um, but kind of authoritarianism in a really short kind of succinct way is really just this like this kind of desire uh, or this kind of favoring of of this kind of strict obedience right to an authority or to an authoritarian structure especially government right that runs against a little bit of a sense of personal freedom right so this is where it gets maybe a little bit complex so because in the United States, the way we talk about like political philosophy and things make it a little bit more complicated. But the idea of this kind of individual freedom and autonomy that is at the root of liberal democracy and Western democracies, if we want to talk about it that way, are kind of the opposite of these kind of authoritarian tendencies that would say there's a certain kind of a way to be, right? There's a certain set of values that we need to, need to hold, whereas kind of a more kind of pluralistic society would say, you know, if we have some of these kind of base starting points or expectations for how we want to interact with one another that up from that as long as you're not hurting other people or causing harm things of that sort that you can kind of live your life right so this is where like the the linear kind of spectrum becomes a little bit less helpful because there are elements of like what we would talk about as being libertarian or a little bit more i mean liberal libertarian stuff would maybe be a, a contrast to slightly more kind of authoritarian views but it's better to think about it as quadrants and even then it's kind of limiting. But the short answer is this kind of authoritarianism that we're seeing kind of rise is really rooted in this sense of like, there's a right way of seeing the world and being often wrapped up in a belief system, but it's really embodied through these kind of governance structures that have a lot of impact on people's lives, right? So you can have a desire to have a certain belief system, but if it's in a faith tradition, for example, and it's just your congregation or or whatever, like that's something radically different than saying a government which has uh, explicit and kind of overt power 
over people, then that's that's where it starts to become more of this kind of authoritarian structure. This is all happening, okay? But things are actually getting more, there's all of these conservative forces on colleges. And yet, people say that colleges are are the breeding ground for liberals. It's like a liberal breeding ground. The mental mind brainwashing in colleges. What do you say to people? So I hear it all the time. I hear it a lot from people who are kind of outside of the academy. I can't speak to the reality that there are instances where faculty, for example, really very plainly kind of boldly say like, here's, I, I think this politician is whatever, right? They're wrong, things of that sort. So I can't kind of get too deep into the weeds of that because I know it from my place and kind of the worlds in which I exist. But I will note a lot of the research actually runs counter to this kind of sweeping generalization about what the academy does. And so there's some talks uh, before the world shut down. One of the last places I was at was at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. And I was talking about giving a public talk about tensions between free speech and kind of community, right? And how do we think about these tensions? And so uh, some of the material that I was presenting uh, there, because they had a real, they had an incident, they had a kind of provocative speaker on campus, all these students came to protest somebody threw a substance onto the speaker who was more um, conservative, uh, more kind of liberal group was protesting. They didn't know what it was. It was, I think it was like soap and lavender or something like that, but they didn't know what, what it was, right? So the police were there, they were arresting folks. It was this whole big eruption. And so my, my talk there was in part response to say, how does this university, you know, how do you respond to some of this kind of stuff? And so part of what, um, I, I kind of note there is, uh, and I would mention here now, is, is the sense of kind of the, the, the expectations of what a campus culture, uh, what that means, right? Especially when we start talking about something like free speech, which has certain, certain connotations, but I think it should be understood a little bit different uh, than some of that, right? That we have this question about like, who does speech uh, privilege and value, right? Is it absolutist, right? So is it just let anything and everything be said, or is it more constrained to some degree? And that's where you know, our law says, right, that um, you can't yell fire in, in certain buildings and things like that because there's there's larger harm. And so this is where, like, the reality of, like, people are embodied, they have views and values that I can't, you know, I can't say a faculty member shouldn't articulate their views. I typically don't, right? So there's often an ambiguity about where I actually stand on stuff. And I've gotten, um, I actually might be worth to mention this this kind of story in a moment, but a real intentionality around some of that because I am teaching about how do we do some of this kind of deliberative work very thoughtfully that steps into the contentious issues. And so for me, the way that I talk about some of this is social justice gets hung up as this kind of left wing thing. And I think some of that needs to be maybe addressed or engaged, retrieved in some fashion because what's underneath that, right? That this sense of, of maybe equality and justice, like it, I don't know, why that gets kind of pegged as this kind of really negative thing. But to your to your question, right, of kind of the college campus uh, stuff, lots of surveys come out that, um, let me see if I can find this. Uh, there was a study uh, in uh, North Carolina earlier this year about their student body, about kind of the climate regarding speech. And, and one of the, the main takeaways here, um, you know, students were sometimes concerned about their grades being affected especially more conservative rather than liberal. But one of the takeaways that I really find fascinating from the study at uh, UNC Chapel Hill 
was that students across the political spectrum wanted more opportunities to engage those who thought differently, right? So this is a big part of where we need to do some of this work. But some research from a book called The Still Divided Academy, we know it, right? The faculty who show up in these places are more left-leaning. The sciences are the most conservative, right? So the hard, soft sciences pieces. But even in certain disciplines and areas, when we look at the political views from when they start college to when they leave, it's amazingly consistent, right? So the idea of kind of the brainwashing, uh, this is from that Still Divided Academy book. Um, it's fascinating. It's actually written by conservatives. And it kind of, I don't know, I, debunks is the right word, but it challenges this narrative that you come into the university and all of a sudden you just lose your, your morals. You, you kind of are are no longer kind of rooted in some of these traditions. I'm in the state of Kansas, right? I would say our student body, I actually know this from some data, skew center right. And so I used to teach I, for a period of time, lived in New York City and taught there for a, a little while. And right, it skewed center left or really further left. It was a small liberal arts college rather than a large state school. And so you know, higher ed colleges and universities are not some monolithic thing, right? They're grounded in the places they are, the people who comprise them, the faculty and the students and uh, staff. But this kind of sweeping statement of like education inherently makes you more liberal. The way that I hear some of that is that, you know, it's not about indoctrination. It might be more about uh, an acknowledgement that like the way that I see the world is maybe not the only way to see it, right? Or that people have other experiences. Gosh, and I and I, I realize this now, right? I'm, I grew up in Ohio, uh, lived in New York for a lot, and now I'm in Kansas. But I'm, you know, I'm white, I'm male, I'm somewhere in the middle class on the lower end. You know, my parents, my father was a police officer, my mother is was is a nurse. I think it's important to, for myself, seeing my own kind of growth and, and kind of maturation being rooted in the sense of like, how do I continue to learn from others and, and experience and see the world uh, maybe through somebody else's kind of lens as they articulated, right? As we're seeing it now, right? For so many people, and this is what much more what I mean about kind of the social justice piece is understanding what does it mean for there to be more kind of equity? What does it mean for certain segments of the population to be just utterly kind of ostracized or kind of shut out, right? And so learning about things like red lines and things of like who got to buy houses in what kinds of places realizing that that existed still exists in various ways right so this is the kind of systemic some of the systemic challenges that we face and i think we need to wrestle with that doesn't mean it's all just kind of skewing to some kind of left thing but it's more this idea of like consideration right i haven't lived that i don't know some of this so how might i consider it that's maybe a little bit more of an inclination towards that ambiguity as we were talking about before and less that kind of certainty of the world as it is yeah. because if all of a sudden the world is no longer as i thought it was and i thought so originally about that but that's really uncomfortable right because all of a sudden like the floor goes away right and that's a real challenge that we need to uh, kind of acknowledge but for education where the world that i exist is not so much of like telling anybody what to think. In fact, I usually am much more interested in you walking away feeling unsure about a lot of stuff, um, your own views included, rather than being like, and here is the argument or here is the position that you really want to end up with because that's, that's not the world, right? Um, we need to find better ways to have those interactions and kind of space for that wrestling. And that's a, a big part of what I think about my work being at NICD 
and also Kansas State is really rooted in this, this sense of kind of the openness of learning and consideration, that humility, uh, and at the same time recognizing like you do have things to bring to it. So Tim, tell us uh, what you're working on now and how we can follow you. Yeah, so one of the things that I'm working on a lot right now is something called the Kansas Civic Life Project. And it's, it's at Kansas State University, but it's a, a research project that is uh, really rooted in this idea of understanding both who people are doing kind of this community building work, uh, creating kind of space for these conversations and interactions across the state. So Kansas, um, if you don't think about Kansas a whole lot, it's one of these rectangular states out here in the middle. But it is interestingly situated because it's got some diversity. It's got a few larger cities, Kansas City, metro area, uh, Wichita, but then a lot of other places are very small. Some like literally in the hundreds or, or, or less that would kind of dot the map throughout, especially the western part of the state. And so we have an interesting kind of composition of citizens and communities. And part of the, the Civic Life Project really is to understand and kind of map who is doing kind of public discussion work across the state, right? So who's doing it through universities and nonprofits or also faith communities, but also individually, right? And so a big piece of this is to say, one, who's out there doing any of this work, but two, also part of the mapping is to say how are people approaching it um, so we can understand some variation there, but also for it to be a resource. So this mapping will become a publicly available resource through our Institute for Civic Discourse and Democracy at K-State to where people can see other folks in kind of networks. And so they'll be able to choose kind of using data visualization as an option of like certain processes, depending if they're trying to have exploratory discussions, rather in contrast to maybe decision-making, they might find the right people around them to do some of that. And then the other kind of second piece here, and it, it really is um, related to so much of what we were talking about, is really rooted in this idea of kind of education and training. And so introducing diverse groups of people to civil discourse. What does it look like? How does it happen? Uh, what are the processes for facilitating that to do it well? Things like that. And so this is a, a statewide project that I'm leading uh, and have some collaborators here on, on campus at K-State but also um, others around, uh, around the state and their local communities who can contribute to by filling out a fairly simple form. And then all of a sudden they pop up on the, on the map, literally, uh, which is great. And for us in a long, longer term kind of approach to this that we can see some longitudinal data of like, what does it look like now in contrast to some point in the future? So part of this is trying to establish some baseline since some of this is not necessarily kind of indexed in the ways that we would think about or other sort of categories like, voter participation and things of that sort. This is a little bit different. Cool. All right. And are you on any social media? Uh, yeah, I am. Um, Twitter is probably the easiest way to kind of track that down. So it's Timothy J. Schaefer. And uh, we have a, our Institute for Civic Discourse and Democracy also has a page, which is KSU underscore ICDD. And then um, NICD is NICD Institute. Um, so if you're Facebook pages for all of those, those things too, for those organizations. So if you're interested in anything that's going on kind of locally here, but, and, and ICD, I hadn't mentioned a whole lot, but is kind of this national, is a national organization that's doing a lot of this, uh, trying to create resources and materials for legislators, as well as for citizens in their own communities, faith communities, um, neighborhoods and the like to be able to engage these differences more constructively. So I would encourage your audience to check those out. 
Great. And they will be in the show notes which are in the VIP group. You can sign up at laurenlodgy.com slash podcast. Thank you so much, Tim. And um, we'll have to have you back. Yeah, this is great. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. So, Melania, are you going to relay how democracy works for Donald? Oh, good idea. Makes it easier for him to destroy it. All right. Forget that. Okay. So for the rest of us, let's think about this. Democracy is more than institutions. It's also about individuals and a constant practice. Facebook rants are not the same as constructive civil discussion. And people can change their minds. And it's okay. It doesn't make them weak. And listen, folks, the rise in authoritarianism is significant and real. So get involved as much as you can. Let me know what you think. Before we go into the I Don't Care to You segment, I'd like to do a few things. First, I want to encourage everyone to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really, really helps other people find us. Second, you know that Reconcile the Isle, you can follow it on my Twitter and Instagram at Lauren Logi, L-O-G-I. And do consider signing up at laurenlogi.com slash podcast to get reminders when we publish this every other week. And also on my website, you can find out about some other exciting things going on. My book, Inside Melania, What I Learned About Melania Trump by Impersonating Her, is out now, including the audiobook, which is done in character and fills with voices of all my characters. Thank you also to our sponsor, TheMelaniaShow.com, for irreverent election merchandise, including a Vote 2020 Get the Orange Stains Out of the White House button. Go to TheMelaniaShow.com. Get yours today. Listen, we have to learn how to have public dialogue again. The world's on fire and we've got to talk about it. And there is no better way to understand the importance of this than by reading the headlines. So, Melania, give us the top headlines in the I Don't Care Do You segment. Here's all the things that I don't care to you about. A teacher in France was beheaded just for having a discussion. Donald going to fear tactics on his maskless rallies and supporting QAnon. Viruses exploding across the globe. But I don't care. (laughs) Do you? Thank you to everyone who has made this podcast possible. Thank you to Sophia Reyes-Jones for editing, to Devin Edwards for creating the intro, Christopher Catalano for the voiceover, Maddie McLennan for making the podcast art, and a shout out to Alan Waters, Danny Holtz, and Craig Franson, who helped me to conceptualize this podcast. And of course, thank you to Timothy J. Schaefer for being such a wonderful guest. See you in two weeks. 